Well, this is a special day uh, for the Sloop family. Um, and I wish I had more time. I could probably talk for the next hour about how God has been meeting us in the midst of this process, how we have been blessed and ministered to by people in this room. Melissa and I have met some of you who are older than us, and we have said, we want to be like that when we grow up. We love, love, love this church and are so excited about this next chapter. I want to say uh, briefly a, a, a quick story. We've been in this discernment process for many months, um, seeking the Lord's guidance on whether or not this is what he is calling us to and the church to. And uh, a few months into that process, a friend of mine was passing through town. He used to go to church here um, and he was just back with his family visiting. He's now an ordained minister somewhere else. But we were in the hall talking and, and he said, um, I love this church. He said, there's, there's no place like CHS. And then he said, what are you guys going to do when Quig retires? He's like, I would hate to be the guy that follows him. <laughs> he had no idea. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that, would, be, that would be terrible. Um, let me say with sincerity, it's an honor, Quig, to follow you. The leadership that you have provided for the last 35 years. What a legacy. It's humbling and it is an honor. And so thank you, love you. <clears throat> now, you may hear that I'm struggling with my voice. I want to be like Quig so bad. <clears throat> we, uh, we have reached here the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at Matthew chapter seven today. Before we dig into the text, I wanna show you a video of my daughter, Libby. She's probably three years old, trying to teach her how to throw the Frisbee in my backyard. And I just want you to watch the struggle. And then I'll tell you why I showed the video. Let's take a look. Make sure the volume is... Here. Yeah. Close, try again, just throw it hard. Okay, do it, in, do it that side. No, but you need to stand on that side. You'll have to back up a little because then you can catch. No, just throw it from there, honey. It won't matter where I stand. It's the same throw. No. I want you to stand over. Don't video me. Okay, all right. Where do you... Where do you want me to stand? Okay, come on. It's okay, honey. Just try again. You want me to teach you? Here, try one more time. Just throw it right here. Do you know this feeling as an adult? There's something that you feel like you should be able to do. You see somebody else do it and then you just can't seem to do it. Let me ask you a more specific question. I wonder for how many of us could this be a metaphor for our prayer life? Somewhat aimless. 
you know, our, our prayers aren't quite reaching the intended target. They're not accomplishing what we thought they would. They fall flat. We sometimes feel like our prayers are bouncing off the wall. We don't quite know what we're doing. It doesn't seem to be working. If I'm being honest, more than I'd like to admit, especially on a day like today, this has been a reflection of how I sometimes feel in my own prayer life. And I say that as someone who was in full-time ministry for two decades with an organization whose primary guiding principle is this. In young life, prayer is our first action. Meaning it's the first thing we do, but it's also the most important thing we do. When I would train volunteer leaders at both in Blacksburg and in Harrisonburg with Young Life, one of the things that we would say to them is, is, is a quote from Oswald Chambers. Maybe you've heard it. Prayer is not preparation for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. In other words, prayer is the very thing that activates the Holy Spirit. It is what moves the heart of God to act on behalf of his children. See, I, I knew that. But if you zoomed out from my life and you watch how I lived, to my shame, what you would observe is someone who puts a whole lot more stock in his actions, in his behaviors, and in his strategic choices, and even his gifts, his personality, than he does his prayers. I suspect that I'm not the only one who sometimes feels like prayer is this mysterious thing that we know we're supposed to do, but we struggle. This morning, in Matthew chapter seven, we are going to look at what I believe is the most over-the-top, audacious promise that Jesus makes about prayer anywhere. In fact, I think this is probably the most over-the-top, audacious claim Jesus makes about anything in Matthew chapter seven. Let's look at what he says. And I want you to notice, first of all, the uncomfortable simplicity of this promise. It is so simple and plain what he's telling us that it's almost uncomfortable. Let's look at what he says. Verse seven, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He's not done. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. This is not confusing. He says, if you ask me, I will do it. If you ask me, I will do it. Now, when we see repetition in the Bible... Uh, it's like God's exclamation point. It's added for emphasis. It's there on purpose. God is holy, holy, holy. We're supposed to pay attention. Sometimes Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say to you. And this is not to suggest that other things that Jesus says are not true. But what Jesus is saying when he says that is this. Listen close. What I'm about to say next, I do not want you to miss. Sometimes we'll have uh, the writers of scripture will say the same thing in two different ways sandwiched together. 
He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The repetition that we see here in Matthew 7 is kind of similar to that one that we see in Isaiah 53. What is Jesus saying? What is the simple and obvious promise here? There's one word that's repeated in every single verse that we read today. All five verses, you're going to see one word, and it is ask. Ask, and I'll do it. Ask me, and you'll get it. Ask me, and you'll receive it. How many times does Jesus say this? First, you might say three. That's what they said at the early service. But it's not three. It's six times. Jesus promises six times back to back to back to back to back. I will give it to you if you ask me. Do you feel uncomfortable yet? (laughs) Are the warning bells going off in your mind? See, this gets even even more difficult to, to deny the plain and obvious meaning of this text when you compare it to the other things that Jesus said about prayer in places like John 14, 15, and 16, where he says something to the effect, I think about seven times in those three chapters, anything you ask in my name, I will give it to you. Anything you ask in my name, I will give it to you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. If two of you agree about something here on earth, I'll do it in heaven. See, we wanna let Jesus off the hook here. (laughs) This feels uncomfortable. An obvious tension arises inside of us when we read this really plain and obvious promise about prayer. And here's the tension. He can't really mean that. That's not what he means. I mean, this is, this is in our flesh. We're like, no way, no. Our, our experience doesn't really line up with that. And so we're not quite sure what to do with it. It can lead to two extreme uh, opposites for our view of prayer. One of them you've probably heard characterized as name it and claim it. If you say it, God must do it. He becomes Aladdin's genie with tremendous power. But you see, Aladdin was actually the one in in charge. Uh, God, in this view, is at our service. And we are the ones telling him what to do. It goes like this. If you don't have wealth, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you or someone that you love is sick still, you have not prayed hard enough. Friends, this is not what Jesus is saying and is not what the Bible teaches. It is heresy. However, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, let me commend a couple things about the name it, claim it view. It's primarily this. There's tremendous confidence in the power of God in the name it and claim it view. Secondly, there's tremendous confidence that God wants to act on my behalf. And that's also true. God wants to do it. Here's where it falls short. In this view, God is completely robbed and stripped of his sovereignty. He's no longer God. He's your servant This is not what it means. We don't get a blank check, okay? This is not what it means. In fact, some of us, we know instinctively it cannot be that because it just doesn't line up with my experience. I know personally 
a number of people in this room who asked God to do it. He didn't do it. What do you do with that? Where does that fit into your theology? For some, that can lead to distance, disillusionment, disappointment. It can even lead to complete estrangement from God. But if you hold on to your faith, this might be what your view of prayer becomes. It sounds so right, by the way. God is sovereign and he's good. And therefore, I can trust him. Even when it doesn't go the way I want, I know that he's good. There's nothing wrong about anything that I said. But here's the reality. The attitude underneath those beautiful theological propositions is often, what is the point of praying? God is going to do what God is going to do. And therefore, why do I waste my breath in his time? It's not going to change anything. It's not going to move the needle. And I'm not even upset about it. I just expect very little. Now, what is the problem with that view? You see, this view of God robs, uh, this view of prayer robs God of his sovereignty. But over here, we maintain God's sovereignty. See, this is a theologically safer view and it's emotionally safer too. He maintains his sovereignty. And I also protect myself from ever being disappointed or hurt. The problem is we strip God of his goodness and his kindness in this view. We become people who essentially believe that the subtext of our view on prayer is this. Just shut up and trust him. Don't hope for anything because at the end of the day, God is going to do what he's going to do anyway. Friends, this is not the right view either. It's impossible to understand what Jesus just said six times in a row in light of this extreme sovereignty view. So what is it? Jesus invites us to live in the uncomfortable middle of those two extremes. And the only way that we could possibly understand the boundaries and the constraints of Jesus' view of prayer is by looking at the metaphor that he couches the promise in. Did you hear it when we read? How many of you, if your son asks you for bread, do you give him a stone? See, Jesus is like, you can't understand what I'm saying here unless you understand a couple things. The first thing you gotta understand is this. You are his kid. I mean, you are his, you're his little kid. Do you know that this is an essential and necessary component to the gospel message? The gospel message is not, you were estranged from God, an enemy, and by his grace he saved you, and now you are obedient soldiers and servants. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you were a wayward, rebellious enemy. By his grace, he saved you. And as John's gospel tells us, and he gave you the right to become 
children of God. You were adopted in to his family. And not just adopted, but you were given full rights as sons and daughters. Do you know what happens when you start to believe this, that we are his kids? We start to act like his kids. We just start to act like it. Do you know down in the fundamental part of who you are, the deepest sort of core of your identity, that you are his child? Because when you grasp what Jesus is telling us here, we will naturally behave like it. And how do kids act? We can learn a lot from them. Let me give you just a couple. Our kids... They say whatever is on their mind. If it's in here, it is coming out of here, okay? They have little to no filter. I will never forget, this was many years ago, uh, the Fetzer family invited the Sloop family to come join them at Emerald Isle at the beach. We only had Sydney at the time. Um, but sweet little Charlie, uh, she couldn't have been more than four, five years old. We arrive and... Uh, Charlie Fetzer runs into my arms and she would, Charlie, I mean, she would uh, jump into your arms and then just lock eyes with you and just smile. She was, she was just beholding what was in her sight. She was beholding the beauty. And, <laughs> and without breaking a smile, Charlie goes, your nose is big. <laughs> Do you know why Charlie said that? Because it is, okay? <laughs> and she saw it, and so she said it. Because kids say what's on their mind. If they want something, they ask you for it. If you say no, what do they do? They keep asking, but mom, but mom, but dad, but dad, but dad. They just keep doing it. They are relentless, persistent little boogers. <laughs> they cannot help it. <laughs> they do not take into consideration whether or not what they are asking for is reasonable, whether or not you have the resources to provide whatever they asked for, or whether or not it will be good for them. All they know is this, they have a felt need and a sincere desire. And all they are doing is going to the one to whom they've been conditioned to believe wants to satisfy that desire. Are you his kid? Do you know that? Because if you do, when the penny drops on that one, you just start doing that. And do you know who did that perfectly during his life? It was a man named Jesus. The most dependent human being to ever walk this planet. Think about that. God in the flesh with all power. He could do anything. If there was ever someone that didn't need to be independent, it was Jesus. Or rather, yeah, you know what I meant. But Jesus lived completely dependent upon his father every day of his life. Listen to just a couple things that he said. <laughs> Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what my father gives me to say. And in the ESV, he says it this way. And I say it the way he wants me to. Jesus was completely dependent. And therefore, prayer for Jesus, it was not so much a discipline that he exercised. It's just what he did. It was just a way of life. Because when you're a kid, you just, you ask, you ask, you ask. Every thought becomes something you tell your father. It's just what you do. 
But secondly, we need to know who our dad is. Do you know who your dad is? Do you know what he's capable of? The one that spun the planets into orbit? The one that opened his mouth and suddenly there was light? The one who dreamed up every sunset, every mountain peak? The world that we live in and all of its splendor and beauty was his canvas. He did that in a few days. There is no question God cannot answer. There's no problem he cannot solve. He's never been stumped and there's nothing that he cannot afford Listen, if our kids relentlessly ask us and we are incredibly limited in our resources, shouldn't we at least be as bold as our kids in our asking of the one who is unlimited? But here's the deal. I don't think most of us struggle wondering whether or not he has the power to do this stuff. See, the, the question is not, can he? But what is it? Will he? Does he want to? Do you remember in Mark chapter one when the leper came down from the mountain, he fell at Jesus' feet? Do you remember what he said? It's such a beautiful way that he says this. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. No question about his power. The question is, would Jesus be inclined to use it for him personally? And this is where most of us struggle. This is what we're not sure about. Our question is not about his power, but it's about his heart. And this is why the metaphor that Jesus uses is so important for us to understand. I want to read it to you again. Starting in verse 9. He says this, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? Guys, I'm a dad. And can I tell you, other dads, moms, you know this, there is no joy. There's no joy like watching your kids light up from things they didn't expect to get from you, even things that were financially unwise for me to do. I love, love, love to bless my kids. <laughs> Don't really have time to go into this, but a couple years ago, we took our kids to Disney. And do you know the day before we told our kids about that trip, I could not sleep. <laughs> do you know that Melissa and I, we, we were like, this is how God must feel. He must Look, you know how to give your kids good gifts. The day that we told our kids about Disney was probably one of the most fun days of my life. The next day at Disney, Disney was the worst day of my life. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know how to do it. No one had to teach you how to do it. You know how to give good gifts to your kids. And do you know what? When we take the posture in front of our perfect father and the quiet posture of our heart is you probably don't wanna do this. You probably won't. Do you know how offensive that is? You know what we're saying to him? We know how to be parents better than you do, God. We cannot have that posture. Now, what about the times we need to say no as parents? We don't say yes every time. Why not? Well, because I know what a sugar-only diet will, will lead to. 
That's what my kids want to eat. I know what 12 hours of television per day will do to their brain. Sometimes I say no to my children because I know what's best for them. So does your father. But it's not just the trivial stuff like that. What about the pain that he allows? I will never forget sitting in the doctor's office with my youngest, I mean, oldest, Sydney Jane. It's the first time I went through this as a dad. All of you will know exactly what I'm gonna say. She's looking at my eyes. She's old enough. She's probably like, you know, one or two. She's old enough to kind of have a personality, interact with you. You see from her face what she means. She's saying little words. And then all of a sudden, in the doctor's office, this, this evil nurse, she comes up and she jabs Sydney in the leg with a shot. The look on Sydney's face, do you know what it was? Dad, how could you do this? Listen, I know it's funny, but I remember that moment and I was like, I don't know. Why did I do this? I wanted to punch that nurse. <laughs> do you know why? Because I'm a dad, but I'm a dad who's evil. And my heart breaks for my kid when they're in pain, even though sometimes I know that they have to endure it. And Sydney at one or two could not possibly understand the perspective that her daddy had Guys, do you know that we can trust him in our pain? Much of it, much of it we will not understand on this side. We're gonna share with you a quote from C.H. Spurgeon who dealt with a lot of pain, suffering in his own life. He said, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to make a mistake. But when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. When you cannot see his hand stretched out to deliver you, you can trust his heart. He's good. Do you know who your dad is? Now listen, that's incomplete. Because some of you might say, well, how do we know? Do we take that on blind faith that he's good? That we can trust his heart? Let me tell you why. Because at the end of Jesus' life, he went to a garden called Gethsemane and he knew what the next week had in store. And he was in shambles. And he got on his knees and he said, Dad, if there is any possible way, any other way we could do this, I'm begging you. Do you know what, God? Think about this for a second. Perfect son, perfect father. Imagine my heart aching for Sydney's little vaccine. Can you imagine the gut-wrenching pain of that perfect father looking down at his perfect son who's begging for a different way to do this. And you know what God said to him? No. God said no. Jesus, in a sense, asked for some bread. God gave him a stone, a stone under which he would be crushed 
for your iniquities and for mine. You see, God's no to Jesus was also God's yes to you and to me. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross, we don't get to be his kids. Do you know who your dad is? I was talking to Melissa about this yesterday and she sent me a text as she was reflecting on this passage and what we were gonna be talking about. (laughs) And she said, for all of God's children, for every no or not yet that we will experience in this life, (laughs) we know that one day there will be a guaranteed and final yes as we enter in to the world for which we were made, a world with no tears, no pain, no heartbreak, no sickness, no disease. That's the world that we're made for. This one, it's a vapor and there is pain, but God is preparing you for that one. And so we can trust his heart. Be his kids. Let's learn together what it looks like to just respond to our dad. And if he doesn't give you the answer you were hoping for, don't stop asking. He wants to do it. And this, this way of living called prayer, this is how we get to know him. So that when we do stumble into glory, we will be face to face with the one we've spoken to every moment of our earthly existence. This is what we're made for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to look at your word. Father, thank you for your over-the-top promise to answer us, to answer us, to answer us. You want to, you want to, you want to. God, give us the courage to move towards you in prayer, believing that your heart is good, that we can trust you. And for those who have never known God as Father, you can know Him today. You can know Him. You can come home. As always, these front rails here, these curved ones are for you during this time to pray and connect with God. And the straight rails will be for you. If you'd like to pray with a person, we'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.